Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. That's how old I am. Oh, I see a red line. We gotta, oh, we gotta be whoa, good. Now. Whoa, whoa, hey, hey, that was there no it morning is. or nothing. There it is. <laughs> We're going heck, right dude? into it. What the heck? <laughs> I gotta, gotta catch some blue. No, we gotta catch some bloopers, man. I gotta get something. <laughs> Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Code of Conduct with the King Podcast. I am your host, Jay Spence the King. And I am back for the fourth time. It's a real good week. It's a real good week. It is November 10th, 2020. The Buffalo Bills are 7-2 after defeating the Seattle Seahawks. 44 to 34. Our quarterback, Josh Allen, has tossed his name back into the whole conversation for that MVP award, that conversation. Our coach has a signature win against a playoff coach. That was one of the things that was talked about a lot or seems to be brought up that Sean McDermott doesn't have wins against playoff caliber coaches. Well, Got one against a Super Bowl winning coach. Got one against a coach that is in the playoffs just about every single year. Very, very good coach. Well, Bruce doesn't quite seem to think so. We'll talk about that later on as well in the show. But today, fun show. I'm not going to talk a lot right now because we actually have a lot to talk about today. I have my man Bruce Nolan from the Bruce Exclusive Show. I have my man Joe Miller from the Overreaction Podcast. And together they're joining me we're going to have a really really good show we're going to talk a lot about the game we're going to talk about next week so i hope you guys enjoy it i'm not going to talk much let's go this is a jay spence exclusive (laughs) i prefer the harmony in that song you gotta get it first I'm sorry, like yeah, I like the I like the low dude harmony in that song. So it's hard to do that with headphones on though. It's weird. She's great though. She she's just awesome. Do you want to hear a horrible? Uh, I don't want. I don't want. It's gonna sound awful if I say this story about me. 
and it's recording. Okay. If it wasn't recording, I would tell this story about me, but I'm not going to do it while it's recording. Okay. Well, we could talk about it after we're done. That so, <laughs> so, but listen, ladies and gentlemen, I'm excited. This is a fun episode for me. This is going to be a good episode, but it's going to be fun for me because I have two of my favorite content creators at the same time joining me. Uh, first, I have the podcast host of the Bruce exclusive, the one, the only Bruce Nolan. And then I have my bestie himself in the flat, well, the voice, I guess, because we're not in live in person but i have my guy joe miller of the overreaction podcast joining us from buffalo fanatics network how's it going gentlemen i guess we can start with bruce i don't want us talking over each other how's it going bruce dude it's a party all the time just disco balls dancers the whole thing i'm here for it (laughs) how about you joe hey my girl likes to party all the time as well you put out that tweet uh about who's you know pick one and i picked eddie murphy so my girl's partying all the time with you know with rick james up here in buffalo so you know what, Buffalo, even if it wasn't for like the Bills fans and what we're known for, Buffalo does, we, we have party, you know, ingrained in the in the area. A little bit. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I feel good. Today is, today is a good day for me. This is going to be a great week. How about you guys? I feel like Victory Mondays, Victory Tuesdays, and Victory Wednesdays are always better than <laughs> any week that you don't have a win. Seven of nine. I mean, come on. I mean, even though two of them weren't necessarily the way that we wanted them to look uh, for me, seven of nine and this last one. And I didn't even on my podcast overreaction guy that I am didn't even talk about statement win, quote unquote statement win coming off of the Seattle game. But a lot of other content creators have talked about it. It's kind of everywhere. It was on NFL Network today. Just this being a statement win, but yeah, man. I mean, the the, the I'm elated. You, you, it's going to be difficult to get the smile off my face. Uh, just the way the Buffalo Bills came out and played that football game just set the tone early, right from the start with Andre Roberts. It was great. I'm I'm excited. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think that uh, this week is going to be a good week to be a Bills fan, to be part of the mafia, and also to be a content creator because it's no secret that more people consume content after a win than they do after a loss. Mm. And more Mm. people consume it even more so after a big win because they're excited and they will be more open to hearing more positive things. You know, when the team doesn't perform up to expectations or they lose in heartbreaking fashion, people sometimes need time to heal. And sometimes that means avoiding Bill's media or Bill's content creation. And so it's good for us just from a matter of, you know, people might say, oh, you don't even want the team to win. No, no, I want the team to win. (laughs) I always want the team to win. More people listen to my show when the team wins. Um, But not just that. It's also the fact that we are also fans and we are people who get excited about the team just like everybody else does. And so in addition to my own selfish reasons that I'm glad more people will watch, you know, watch the YouTube channel and more people will listen to my pod. In addition to that, it's just good to feel good about your team. And that's where we're at. Yeah. Well, did, and I'll tell did, you what, I, Bruce. Hang, hang on, Spence. Am I the only one? Wait, no, 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 wait, 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 wait. This is called Kanda. Hold on. Hold on, Bruce. <laughs> <laughs> well, I had a follow-up to that. I had a follow-up. <laughs> well, I kind of did too. Go ahead, man. I'm just this curious. Is- <laughs> I'm just curious if anybody else like me. So, like, yes, we revel in the wins, and the wins is what we want. But, like, the losses write themselves so much better. Like, when we lose, I've got, like, two pages of notes. When we win, I've got, like, a half a page. Like, it's just like, we won. <laughs> well, when we lose, I've got like tons of crap that I'm just done. I'm just wondering if that's so as much as the listeners like the wins, they want to listen to the wins. It's much easier to create content around the losses, I think, just because there's much more to really? talk about. But for me, See, that was going to be my follow up because I was oh, going to say, you know, I was going to ask Bruce more on the sense of like, well, for me, it's more difficult after a loss to 
to sit down and mm. focus for however amount of time, whether it's 30 minutes, 45 minutes, an hour to do this show. It's so much more difficult for me to do it after a loss. Oh, wow. For me, it's it's about tape Tuesday. So when I go down to sit, th- sit down and, and go through my notes and, you know, kind of formulate the plan, what I've done over the last couple of years I've been doing the show is I'll try and make sure that I've collected enough social media in my brain to take notes on what it is specifically that the mafia wants to hear about. What is it specifically? What players, what concepts, what plays, what downs, what coaching decisions, what is it exactly that they care about? And then I'll mix in with that some things that I think are interesting. So the things that mafia wants to hear about things I think are interesting. I'll sit down on tape Tuesday. I'll pull up the all 22. I'll go through the whole thing. I'll take my notes as I'm going. And that process is easier for me after a win than it is after a loss. Because every single down, when something doesn't go the way I want it to, it's just a little dagger. Just every single time when you got to say, listen, I don't really want to talk about AJ Klein last week, right? But the mafia wants to talk about AJ Klein. So now I have to sit down and watch every single one of AJ Klein's snaps so that I know that I'm saying something intelligent about AJ Klein. And that's the thing that really hurts you as you go, I don't want to, I'm going to do this. Okay. But I'm going to complain the entire time. So that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to sit down here. I'm going to pull up my computer. I'm going to do the things I need to do. And then I'm going to take a break halfway through, walk out there, put my hands on my hips, maybe my hands up on my top of my head. My wife's going to look at me and go, Bruce, what is it? And I'll be like, I'm watching AJ Klein tape. And it's just a thing. So for me, that process is easier after a win than it is after a loss. So the amount of work is the same for me. How much it feels like work is different based on how much we've won or lost. Right, right. Yeah, I think I could agree there. Because for me, that's the thing, the feeling of it. Because you're right, it's the same amount of, you know, editing. It's the same amount of preparation and all of it. But it just seems like it's so much more work (laughs) when we have a loss, man. Or even even the last couple of weeks when I was not as happy as everybody else was um, after the Patriots win and after the Jets win, it still was a very heavy process for me. I record at six o'clock on Sunday, so it's super easy for me. If AJ Klein plays and he sucks at six o'clock, I just yell into the microphone, AJ Klein sucks. And then it's over. (laughs) (laughs) I do. Well, you know what? Before we get into the questions that I had prepared, I kind of need to ask you this, Joe. How's it going right now with our Bohorquet, you know, your your Corey Bohorquez love hate relationship? How's that going? First of all, you're a jerk. Can we just start there? (laughs) You're a jerk. Uh, For even bringing it up, you are a jerk. Uh, the Bohorquez jersey has been ordered, so it is en route from China or China, if you like Donald Trump, whichever <laughs> way you want, you want to pronounce that. But the jersey is on its way. No, I did not go get a $200 authentic Buffalo Bills game jersey or ready to be worn in a game authentic NFL apparel jersey. I got a whatever it was, $27 Chinese knockoff, which actually look really nice. I've had several of them, uh, but the Bohorquez jersey, because I assume that he is going to finish this season as well as he has started it. Uh, he has come around. He has found his leg. He's no longer shank eponymous. And sooner than later, <laughs> Joe Miller will be donning the number nine of one Corey Bohorquez. I just had to ask that because so Bruce, I'm sure you're aware of Joe and I, we have this back and forth about how I thought uh, Corey Bohorquez was actually a pretty decent punter. I just thought that the injury played into it. And, and even still, 
when new guy when rookies or young guys come into the league, there is a learning curve. And I feel like with punters, kickers, we're seeing it again this year with Tyler Bass, with kickers sometimes and punters and other positions, you don't have the same patience because they're you know, their performance is so dependent on one or two. You know, it's like you see that one play and it matters so much. What are your thoughts so far this year in, in comparison to last season and when he initially got injured when we signed him? What are your feelings about Corey and, and how he's doing? Well, Horkus has been markedly better this year than he was last year. Now, I think there's still a level of inconsistency associated with Corey Bohorquez where if it is that he ends the year as inconsistent that he is now, it's not like it's off the table. It's not like, well, guys, that's it. He's our franchise punter. If you can even call a punter that. Is there such a thing as a franchise punter, guys? <laughs> can we use that? that. Franchi- <laughs> I'm going to do an entire podcast on defining franchise punter. It's going to be great. 30 people will listen. It'll be amazing. Anyway, you know what? I would say Brian uh, Mormon was. Yeah, Brian Mormon was a franchise punter, you know? And I, I think that, I think there's a requirement to have a 20-year drought. Like, you have to be in the middle of a 20-year drought to have a franchise. That's like the first requirement to have a yeah, franchise well, punter. In that case, I'm not interested because there was a, a stretch of time when there was a legitimate argument that Brian Mormon was the best player on this team. And I am he not here for it. I am totally not here for it. So I think that, you know, Corey Bohorkas has been better this year. But it's kind of hard to be worse than you were last year. So I think that the highs have been higher and the lows have been higher. And so that takes the mean from where he was last year up. I don't think it's absolutely for sure that he's the guy at the punter position and we should just not worry about it. But if he continues this upward trajectory, there's a very reasonable chance that I'm not going to be pounding the table for a punter draft pick in the sixth round like I was in 2020. Right. That's cute. Now do AJ Klein's first seven games and his last game. Yeah. <laughs> we already talked about how much I did not enjoy watching AJ Klein film historically. And uh, spoiler alert for, for the Bruce exclusive this week. Uh, the, I, I'm going to have to do AJ Klein work again this week. Now, it'll probably be a little bit more beneficial to my mental health than it had previously right. been. But AJ Klein will also be on the docket for watching all the snaps because you can't watch all the snaps of every player. There's just not enough hours in the day. So you have to pick a couple that the mafia wants to hear about and things that are important to them. And you go with that. And AJ Klein's one of those players again. Good stuff. Okay. Well, let's, let's, um, we can change topics here a little bit because I do want to, let's talk about the game that we just, you know, like you mentioned, it was a big game for the bills. It was a statement win, like you said, that everybody's talking about. So Bruce, we can start off with you. You know, Josh Allen came out 31 of 38, 415 yards passing second time in his career that he's thrown for more than 400 yards passing three touchdowns in the air one on the ground this is the most complete quarterback we've seen in buffalo since the 90s so before we actually get just into everything about the game and talking about aj klein and all that good stuff to you what is the most impressive thing when you look at Josh Allen from year one to year three, what is the thing that jumps out the most at you? That's like, holy smokes, this dude is, you know, is different and he's legit. When I think about that question, there's so many different things that I want to say. And I try to come up with a nice noun or adjective or something that can, I can use as kind of a encompassing holistic word. And I think I found one and what it is, is control. And I'll tell you what I mean by that. So Josh Allen coming out, was oftentimes compared to like a wild stallion, a gunslinger. He was someone who needed to be reined in. And it's not just the result of needing good coaching 
that ends with you being reined in. That's not what that is. It's also a result of you being able to control yourself. So the difference in Josh Allen from year one to year three is a lot. But if I can sum it up in one word, it'd be control. And that means not only just controlling the game, not only just controlling the routes, controlling the audibles, controlling the run checks, controlling the line of scrimmage and the project protections, which Josh Allen is good at the line of scrimmage, folks. It's hard to quantify that part of his game because there isn't a statistic for opportunity cost. There isn't a statistic for what your team would have done if not for this audible from Josh Allen. What your run game would have done if not for this check from Josh Allen. Right? What the play would have looked like if he hadn't seen this and correctly identified that. So there isn't a stat for that. It's just lost opportunity cost. But Josh Allen is good at the line. So yes, we can control those things. And that's a big part. In the pocket, it's about controlling the flow of the game. It's about controlling your feet. It's about not panicking and bailing out at the slightest bit of pressure because you know what you're seeing. You know what the route concepts are. You know where your man is going to come open. This is a matter of controlling game flow. So you have control in the line of scrimmage. Then you have controlling game flow. And the last thing is controlling yourself. One of the biggest discussions about Tim Tebow coming out was his gigantic looping left-handed throwing motion that looked like a windmill straight out of the Netherlands. And he would take the ball and cup it down and it would go by his belt loop and then loop all the way around. And when you have a less than ideal arm, then you have this big looping motion. You're going to get passes picked. You telegraph early. You don't have the velocity to get there. It's a problem. And the, the chance over and over again from the Tebow fanatics where his work ethic is so good, he'll fix it. Anytime you questioned a mechanical issue with Tim Tebow, it was, well, his work ethic's so good, it's going to fix it. It's fine. Whatever it is that the coaches want him to do, they can just mold him into whatever because he's got legendary work ethic. Well, guess what? Then when the balls started flying and the bullets started whizzing by his ear and he didn't know what he was looking at after his first read, what did he do? Big looping throwing motion again. And so that's one of the reasons why mechanics are so important to people because it's hard to maintain that level of self-control. It's hard to be able to say, no, nobody, your hip is in the wrong place. Make sure it's in the right place. When there's 300 pound men trying to inflict physical injury upon you, it's a little bit different. Yes, I can do math, but can I do math with a gun to my head? That's the difference. So for Josh Allen, it's not just controlling the line of scrimmage. It's not just controlling the game flow from inside the pocket and understanding, okay, I don't have to bail right now. I know this coverage. I know this route concept. If I hang here for a second, it's going to come open. It's not just those two things. It's also controlling himself. It's going, no, that's how old Josh Allen used to throw the ball. And that was inaccurate. I'm not going to throw it like that anymore. I'm going to throw it like this. Those types of things for a person who has been throwing the ball since he could walk are difficult to try to get fixed. And very rare does it happen. And this is a unique case. And what Josh Allen has shown is that the one trait he's got year three that he has in leaps and bounds more than he had year mm -hmm. one is control. That's that's a great point. Like it does just seem like he's so much more in control of the game. 
Um, you know, obviously in college, when you, when we watch his old film, you can you can see that he's gifted. You can see that the talent is there, but it just all isn't put together. And then again, like you just mentioned, like year one and year two, you can see certain flashes and moments. But you're right. Now it just looks like he completely controls the offense. He completely controls the game. And, and it's refreshing to watch. It's so refreshing after, you know, the last two years. And then even prior to him, as, as much of a game manager, as ty, not in a negative sense, but as much of a game manager Tyrod as Tyrod was, it's still refreshing to see somebody who can push the ball down the field, who has grown to a place of, you know, when it's third and 12, he's throwing it 13 yards. I love that about Josh Allen, and he's in control. Now, he he still has every once in a while certain moments where it's like, come on, Josh. But it's so it's so much less often now. Um, it's just fun to watch. It's fun to watch. So, Joe, let me ask you this, man, because staying with, with Josh, Sunday we had somebody who is widely considered, I consider, um, to be the best quarterback in the league. And Russell Wilson came into Buffalo or Western New York and – Josh Allen outperformed him. He outplayed him. And Josh Allen looked every bit more of a league MVP than Russell Wilson did. What kind of statement do you think that Josh made, you know, showing up the way he did against, to me, one of the best quarterbacks in the league? I think that this year, by and large, has been a statement almost every game, right? So, like, every single game that he is. He's played this year, you know, he came out and was the complete antithesis of everything that we thought. You know, we all made projections. We all had comments and statements. The three of us did, all the content providers. Josh has to make the next step. And I have said many times that what we got the first four games of the season was like, like, uh, like wildest dreams, Josh. Like, oh my gosh, like Josh Allen is going to come out in the first, first four games of the, of the season and he's going to be the number one quarterback, you know, in certain categories. We would all be, have been like, oh yeah, in your wildest dreams. And that's what we got. And then, like, things began to shift and things began to change. He ended up with the injury to his left shoulder. Uh, and then, obviously, defenses started to play him a little different. They went from zone to man. Um, and I think, for me, this game is another piece of that puzzle in as much to Bruce's point. You know, when you're talking about him being in the pocket and seeing and feeling and the confidence that he has and the pocket awareness that he has and the presence that he has, it's it's what was interesting to me in that football game is the first half looked exactly like the first four games of the season where he just stood in the pocket, was super confident, didn't care, did whatever he wanted. In the second half, the blitzes started getting home. Like he started running out of time. It started getting there soon, getting there very, very quick. And like there was there was a point, I think I tweeted it. I was like, they're sending blitzes a lot, Seattle, and they're getting home. Like Josh is going to have to recognize it and do something different. And we saw him mid-game adjust to those blitzes as did Dable and like the whole entire offense around him and I think that's what a, you know an, a quote-unquote MVP quarterback does like and a franchise quarterback does we're, we're watching it with Lamar with Lamar Jackson Lamar Jackson was on fire last year he was unstoppable well he's not really as unstoppable this year he hasn't defenses are finding some certain things to do against him to kind of break him down and he hasn't learned or figured out how to beat it yet whereas Allen is doing that he was doing it game by game now we're beginning to see it in game and I think for me that was you asked me about the statement that was made to me that's the statement that was made for Josh Allen because Russell Wilson that offense was 
unsettled the entire game. Like they were not, they didn't come out necessarily. The Bills came out and punched him in the face from, from, like I said, from jump, from, from, from the, the opening kickoff. And like that offense for the Seattle Seahawks was unsettled. And Russell Wilson was uncomfortable the whole, even his yards that he got, the balls that he was throwing, the touch, the, the deep touchdown that he threw where he just, Basically, was just chucking stuff. Chuck, Chuck and Duck was what he was doing. There was one play. I rewound it three different times for my daughter McKenna to watch it, where Russell Wilson, he he peeled off to his right, came around the corner, uh, evaded the, I don't remember who was, who was coming at him, but he evaded the defender and then kind of began to squat down in anticipation to be sacked. Like he was like giving up already. It's like, well, I'm about to be sacked, realized there was nobody else there, then kind of stood up again and ran more to his left. And I think that basically speaks to what happened in that football game. Josh came out and made changes and adjustments. Yes, he came out hot, but when, when, when adversity came to him, he was able to make the adjustments, make the changes, whereas Russ just never got comfortable. He just was never able to overcome whatever it was that the Bills were doing to him. And obviously a lot of that was, surprisingly, A.J. Klein, what A.J. Klein was doing to him. So that's a, just a joke. You can laugh. but No, I did laugh. It was kind of depressing because like, you know how I've talked about A.J. Klein. And so um, I know we had some questions prepared. I, I'm going to dance around for a bit here because sure. of um, the way that, that comment just went. So, Joe, you know, like you said, A.J. Klein really has been for myself and a bunch of other Bills fans, man. He's been like the thorn in our side this season sure. so far. When, when Matt Milano's not in there and A.J. Klein is out there covering whatever team tight end or running back or god forbid a receiver <laughs> you know it's like you know you just want to pull your hair out I, I really believe that I've gained probably about 500 gray hair on the top of my head since the beginning of the season because of AJ Klein but coach McDermott keeps saying like he's an important part of the team you know he he does so many great things for this roster this Sunday, he told me and a lot of other Bills fans just to shut the hell up. So, so what? To, what was so different in your mind? You know, watching the game, and I don't know if you had a chance to go back, but what was different this week as opposed to previous weeks for AJ Klein? So I watched the game again today um, when I got home from work, and there's actually a question that I want to ask Bruce about it. What, I, I think two things. I think one, I think we saw a different Tremaine Edmonds uh, in that football game uh, than we have seen all year. Um, and there wasn't a point this season where Edmonds, except for maybe the first game early, where Edmonds and Milano were playing together and were both healthy. Uh, obviously, Milano did not play in this football game, but this is the first time that we saw the healthiest version of Tremaine Edmonds that we've seen. I think A.J. Klein benefited from the 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 havoc that that Edmonds was wreaking on the football field. I think it they, there was some extra attention that was being paid to the the freak status that is Tremaine Edmonds when he can get sideline to sideline north and south and can like make plays the way that he was and the part that I want to ask Bruce which Bruce he alluded to it earlier maybe he hasn't gotten there yet I also wonder if they started scheming Klein differently that's just a suspicion on my part um, I'm clearly not an analytics guy nor am I a film breakdown guy I just feel like with the amount that, that Klein was running free, with the stuff that he was doing, the positions and places that he was in, it just felt different for me from what I've seen from A.J. Klein. So my question would be to Bruce, did they scheme him different? Were they asking him to do different things this time? Or was it just he was in his zone? Or was it, like I said, the benefit of playing with Edmonds? There was a difference in the scheme, specifically against Seattle, than there had been previously. There was a lot of simulated pressures, and there was a lot of zone blitzes. And so... You know, for anybody out there who doesn't know what a zone blitz is. So the point being that 
you're not actually bringing extra rushers. You just bring different rushers. So what you'll have happen is you'll have AJ Klein lined up off the shoulder of a defensive end and he will come, but when he comes, one of the players who might be in the center will drop out into the zone that was vacated by AJ Klein. So you're still bringing the same number. You're just bringing different people. And the reason you're doing that is to try to get a free rusher or to get a one-on-one. And that's what they were able to do with AJ Klein because the Seattle offensive line was not good at picking up the zone pressures. There was a scenario where both Mario Addison and Jerry Hughes dropped into coverage and AJ Klein got a pressure on that play. Our two best Mm. pass rushers didn't rush the passer because it's not just about hat on a hat. It's about trying to take advantage of the fact that, yeah, you had four people rushing and the plan was to have four people rushing, but there's a different four people coming from different angles. And so if the offensive line isn't on top of that and they have to confirm that the person who's lining directly across from them, whether that be Jerry Hughes or Mario Addison or whoever it is, they have to confirm that that person's not rushing before they go to look for work. And sometimes when that happens, you end up with a blown situation in in production. And you went with free rushers. So AJ Klein was, this is going to sound horrible when I say it, AJ Klein wasn't actually that much better against the Seahawks. The scheme was in such a way that AJ Klein was able to get free on more than a few occasions. One time he came directly up the middle. He got hit with a running back just like he always does because he just runs in a straight line. And when the running back hits him, the running back hits him because... There is no real pass rush, you know, savvy there from a middle rush from AJ Klein. And Russell Wilson actually tripped over his foot. Russell Wilson tripped over AJ Klein's foot as he was leaving the pocket. So that was one of AJ Klein's two sacks, which was nice. The other one was, of course, a completely free rush. I think the best play AJ Klein made all day was neither one of those. The best play AJ Klein made was on third and one down close to the goal line where he came directly up, put a hat on a hat on the running back, held them to zero yards, and the next play, the Seahawks went for it on fourth down, and he, Russell Wilson threw an interception to Jordan Poyer. That was the best play, because it was the play that he had to make. He filled the hole, he made the pop, he didn't get pushed off his momentum, he pushed back, he was able to get help from the rest of his team, he stopped him for a zero-yard gain. That drives ends differently if AJ Klein doesn't make that stop on third and one. So mm-hmm. I would say the best play he made was something that wasn't schemed up for him. But the sacks and the pressures, a lot of that stuff was because of the way that the Buffalo Bills watched the Arizona Cardinals get pressure on Russell Wilson. We all went into the game thinking we might see a Chiefs redo, right? We might see the same game plan we saw against the Chiefs. We didn't. We saw a very similar game plan to what the Cardinals did against the Seattle team, which was bring pressure, bring pressure, bring pressure. You're going to get burned. We got burned on a huge looping touchdown pass. That's going to happen. Keep bringing pressure. Kudos to Leslie Frazier. Kudos to Sean McDermott. They had a game plan. They said, no, this is going to work. And I understand we're going to get burned. I was worried after that long touchdown pass that they would kind of lose their nerve for that type of game plan. They didn't. And AJ Klein was one of the beneficiaries of it. I have a, I have a question for the two of you, if I can ask him. Yeah, yeah. Yes. So my question mm-hmm. is, is, is based around what Bruce just said uh, in regards to mimicking the game plan defensively uh, that they, that, that they saw Arizona do against, uh, against Russell Wilson. 
if you saw Pete Carroll's or if you saw any of the clips from Pete Carroll's press conference yesterday, he said that we legit expected them to run the ball and they didn't. And we had a really great defensive game plan if they had chosen to run the ball, which led me to believe, well, was the only game that they watched the Patriots game? Because clearly the first four games of the season, like the bills were lights out through the air. Like what did, what did that, how did that resonate with either of you when you heard, if you heard Pete Carroll say that, how did that resonate with either of you when he said that, like we expect them, expected them to run the ball and they didn't like, well, I'll say this quick and then let Bruce kind of jump in. Like, so for me, I'm just confused as, as to what Pete Carroll is thinking or doing right now. Like I, I respect him so much as a coach and I think he's a brilliant mind, but that whole presser is just like, wait, Pete, what are you talking about, man? Like, right. you know, it just didn't seem like either he was prepared at all. It seemed like even even to speak to the press, he just didn't seem prepared. So, you know, honestly, I don't even know how to answer that question because, you know, he he assumed that we wouldn't throw the ball when they have the worst passing defense in the league. And he assumed, right. you know, I just, I, I really respect his brain too much. So I'm not going to comment. I'm going to just turn this part over to Bruce. What do you think, Bruce? Pete Carroll is a reasonable NFL head coach. That's it. Just reasonable, not elite, not upper tier, just reasonable. And I made a point to mention that when I did a podcast in the offseason ranking the head coaching tiers, I had Sean McDermott in a tier above Pete Carroll and Pete Carroll's got a ring. Mm. If Pete Carroll and John mm. Schneider don't have two of the best drafts in the last 20 years back to back, that team would have fired Pete Carroll a long time ago because he ended up with Russell Wilson and he ended up with a slew of defensive players who happened to be excellent and that was able to carry them. The defensive players were able to carry them along with the trade for Marshawn Lynch until Wilson was ready. And now Wilson's carrying them. But that's about it for the Seahawks. And DK Metcalf was a great pick, obviously, and that's wonderful. But Pete yeah. Carroll has never come to me, at least, and appeared that he was an elite upper echelon head coach. And that was the reason why they were winning. They were winning specifically because of how good of a coach Pete Carroll is. And this, of course, just adds fuel to that fire for me. I feel very vindicated when Pete Carroll says things like this. I feel like I'm, I'm Kermit the Frog and I'm sitting, sipping some iced tea. And I'm saying, oh, what's that? You say Pete Carroll made a horrible mistake, I guess, but that's none of my business. Okay. And all of a sudden, I just kind of drift back. And I'm, you, I, you can see me in a hammock swinging back and forth slowly, just chewing on an apple like, oh, that's interesting. All those people hated on me for saying he was a reasonable head coach. That's all. He, he's a reasonable head coach. So I'm not surprised by any of this. Right. I'm not surprised by any of this. Last week, in the lead up to the game, somebody said uh, to me on Twitter, you know, hey, man, you know, the Seahawks don't F around. And I said, well, actually, you know, the Patriots, they have a Super Bowl ring that indicates that do Pete Carroll does on occasionally F around. That. That, so that yeah. does happen. And so this is another That's example of them just not taking the obvious thing. You know, Occam's razor is, you know, when faced with a, uh, a multitude of different possible solutions that the easiest and simplest solution has the highest probability of being correct. But instead, Pete Carroll tried the old, uh, you know, uh, air traffic controller from airplane. Oh, no, 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 no. We won't expect the pass because that's just what they'll be expecting us to do. Instead, no, no, no. We'll go with a run defense heavy game plan because that is we're going to like reverse psychology. The Buffalo Bills like right. they, they want to throw the ball down the field every time that there hasn't been mitigating circumstances. 
that have not allowed the Buffalo Bills to throw 60-40, they have thrown 60-40. The only game plans when the Bills didn't do that were when they were mitigating circumstances like crazy weather and wind or the New England Patriots with seven defensive backs. And you knew the Seahawks weren't going to do that because they were already shorthanded in the secondary. So Pete Carroll should have known this. It's not like there was some crazy trickeration going on by Sean McDermott. Sean McDermott wasn't sitting there, you know, twirling his mustache being like, oh, yes, 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 let's, let's do this. You know, it, it, this was not a maniacal game plan in the laboratory from Sean McDermott. This was just the Bills doing what the Bills do. And the fact that Pete Carroll couldn't figure that out is further evidence that he's just a reasonable head coach. Right. Well, you know what? That that actually is a good segue into one of the questions that I wanted to ask you because, um, you know, Pete Carroll obviously just left Western New York. So he left with an L and uh, he when you go head to head and you you compare them, Coach McDermott, just like I asked Joe earlier, Coach McDermott also had a, a statement win here. And and not just him as a head coach, but the coaching staff. The defense dominated, the offense dominated. And then listen, I still don't understand all the fans over the summer who really questioned the worth and value of Andre Roberts on this team. I feel like there's Preach. not many people um, who can like, and just in, not even just in football, just in general. I don't know if there's many people who are as good at as their job as this guy is at what he does. So with that being said, how satisfying of a win is this for the coaching staff and what type of statement does it make for the coaching staff? Sean McDermott, obviously uh, being the most important. Well, it's gotta be, it's gotta be incredibly satisfying to beat a good team. That has to matter. They can tell you it doesn't matter and it's just one game at a time, but they are human beings. And beating a really good team who was considered to be a Super Bowl contender with an MVP candidate has to be satisfying. I mean, there's no other way to view it if you're if you're a head coach in this league. And so I think, you know, the whole Sean McDermott doesn't beat good teams narrative, I think is a little bit overblown because I don't think you beat good teams without a good quarterback. And Sean McDermott has been trying to cobble together playoff rosters with Tyrod Taylor and rookie year Josh Allen and second year Josh Allen, none of which, none of those iterations of quarterback were clearly franchise quarterback. 2017, Tyrod Taylor was not franchise quarterback level. 2019, Josh Allen, despite what some people will probably tell me, was not franchise quarterback level. This year, Josh Allen is franchise quarterback level so far. That's been a big part of the difference between last year and this year. So I think it's hard for a coaching staff to beat really good teams consistently without a franchise guy. Because, you know, whether you think wins are a quarterback stat or you don't, which I don't, even if you don't think that, they're still a big part of the wins and losses. And so you have to have a lot of other things go right to beat a team when they have a good quarterback and you don't. It's that simple. A lot of other things have to go right. And so I do think that the narrative that Sean McDermott couldn't beat good teams was a little bit overblown because a lot of those teams you were looking at, they all had franchise guys and the Bills didn't. And so for the first couple of years, yeah, they're just trying to cobble together wins by beating the teams they should beat and trying to steal one or two from games that maybe they shouldn't. And that was really how they made the playoffs two times in three years. This year's different. This year it becomes, okay, hey, you know, Josh Allen's a good quarterback. You know, Sean McDermott, if you can't beat this team with Josh Allen, you know, maybe it's on you. You've isolated the variable, but instead of the variable being Josh Allen, now it's Sean McDermott. 
We talk a lot about trying to isolate the variable with Josh Allen by surrounding him with good players and a consistent coaching staff. Well, it, once Josh Allen becomes something that we think he can be, which is a franchise guy, because I think a lot of us believe that he can be that guy for the Buffalo Bills. At that point, now we have a new variable and it's Sean McDermott. So if something goes wrong, now we can isolate different variables. So I think it's really cool that the Bills were able to beat the Seahawks. Now, obviously, I've mentioned previously, I don't think Pete Carroll is an elite coach. I think he's a reasonable coach. And Sean McDermott has got to feel good about it. And he's not going to tell you ever that he believes in statement wins. But we believe in statement wins. We believe in that because how and why you win are more predictive in the future of whether or not you're going to win than just the fact that you got to win. If the Bills would have won against the Seahawks, the way that the Dolphins beat the Rams with basically no offense at all and a bunch of fluky turnovers and some kick return stuff, we would be like, okay, well, they won, but how sustainable is that? Josh Allen putting up a bunch of yards happens whenever a team tries to play them the way that Seattle tried to play them. When you try and play Josh Allen that way, he's going to let you up. That's where we're at now as a team. And that's got to be really encouraging. And oh, by the way, if you didn't want Andre Roberts on this team, you busted. (laughs) Man, (laughs) man. Was he not incredible? He was awesome. Andre Roberts is an above average kick and punt returner. Yeah. Like the very first return of the game, he takes it into <laughs> into their territory to set us up for like the, the quickest and easiest opening touchdown that we've had in recent memory. You know, Joe, and, and you and I speak often, especially on Hump Day Hotline about Andre Roberts. What were your thoughts about his performance Sunday? I, I said on my show, I, I, I didn't I don't know. I addressed people that, that wanted Andre Roberts cut. And I literally was like, you don't even need to hear it from me or Jay Spence or Bruce Nolan or Greg Thompson or Aaron Quinn or any of the content creators that are out there saying that, like, no, Andre Roberts has a place on this team. Like, you don't need to be ratioed by us because Andre Roberts this season has ratioed you like he's proven his worth game in and game out. Like just the it's it's. Andre Roberts to me is Josh Allen on third and 16. You know, we we've talked often you and I have, and and we've all talked about it and we have felt that feeling as Bill's mafia over the last 20 years, where if it was third and eight or third and seven, it was like, there's no way we're getting this third down. Like, and like, sure enough, the ball gets thrown (laughs) to the four, you know, on a four yard out and somebody gets tackled immediately when Josh Allen's third and 16, it's like, Oh no, he's got this. That's how I feel about Andre Roberts. I'm not afraid of him fumbling the ball. And I know he has once this year, but I'm not afraid of him fumbling the ball. I know he's going to secure it. I know he's going to catch it i know he's gonna if he brings it out and makes that decision there's a good chance that he has a reason why he has proven over and over and over again that he is worth every single penny and his roster spot i don't even mind him as a wide receiver i think he's relatively sure-handed as a wide receiver there's a lot of people that hate it when he does that but i love the kid like pro bowl he's the amount of the amount of pro bowlers that this team is going to send this year Diggs is going to the pro bowl roberts is going to the pro bowl like they're going to stack up this year it's going to be crazy well, you know what? And to, to that point, too, um, you mentioned like his decision making. So previously, I don't care who it was. Um, and we've had some good returners in the past. When you're deep in the end zone like that and you're coming out when you're eight yards <laughs> deep into the end zone, I will get so frustrated with him. Any any decision he makes, I'm perfectly fine with. Even if he ends up not making it back to the 20 or the 25, yep. I'm never ticked off with Andre Roberts. Like, dude, you if you feel like you saw any type of hole, you just you do what you do, man. Like, um, it is 
man, it's it's such a weapon that you know it's like not not many teams have. You know, either you're gonna you're gonna try to kick away from him, and then you're gonna make a mistake once or twice a game where it's gonna go out of bounds by accident, or you're gonna shank it off the foot like you know, like we were saying, Bajorquez was doing all last season. So you know, you're gonna get those punts or on kickoff, same thing. You're gonna make a mistake, and then just to what did he have three game changing plays yesterday or Sunday? Like it's crazy. Yeah. No, he, uh, it's, 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 we talked about it already. He, he took, he took that opening kickoff, set the tone. And then three plays later, the bills were in the end zone to a great pass from Josh Allen to Isaiah McKenzie. And the bills never looked back. Like he set the tone and the bills never looked back. It was, that was, it was it right there. Like not the game wasn't over. They clearly had to play the rest of the game, but he set the tone. He punched him in the face and they they had no answer. And I loved it. So real, real quick, final thoughts um, on the before we close the door on this game. So final thoughts on the Seahawks versus Bills. What do we think? Uh, we can start off with you, Joe. Final thoughts. Um, I don't know that uh, as to whether or not this is going. You predicted a uh, you predicted the Seahawks to be in the Super Bowl. Um, I think you at one point predicted the Bills to be in the Super in the Super Bowl with the Seahawks, and I think you even told me at one point in time that this might be a a preview of that a Super preview, Bowl. Yeah. Yeah, um, I'm not so sure. I don't unless the Seahawks do something about that defense. I I don't. I mean, I love DK Metcalf. I love Tyler Lockett. I don't know. I mean, if Chris Carson is healthy, it might be different. They don't have the tight end they need, and I'm talking about just overcoming the the issues and the woes that they have on defense. Now, clearly, Carlos Dunlap, you know, made a difference, and you know, Jamal Adams is going to make a difference. I just I'm not so sure that they're the representative for the NFC. For me, this game was about, and we've talked about it, you know, the Bills, good teams beat good teams. Great teams beat great teams. And this is about, you know, the Bills kind of, I asked John Fina in the Off Tackle with John Fina show last week if beating the Patriots was somehow, some way, getting the legitimately getting the proverbial monkey off of their back so much so that like it just changes the swagger in the locker room changes the swagger on the field changes the way they feel about themselves like there's nobody in the shadow anymore because for 20 years no matter how good this bills team was there was always somebody in the shadow and the person in the shadow was bill belichick and now it's almost like they're they're just running free there's nobody in the shadow anymore like and I just wonder if if that's what this if if that's what this means to this team right now is basically they've turned the corner and they're they're walking different, if that makes sense. Yeah, we we got our hopefully we got our swagger back. What do you think about it, Bruce? I think that this game for me validates the first four weeks for Josh Allen, and what it means is that the first four weeks for Josh Allen were much more related to. Josh Allen beats this particular thing like rock, paper, scissors. Josh Allen is rock man coverage and, Mm. you know, cover zero is scissors. That's just the way it is. Sorry. So although it doesn't necessarily answer the question of how Josh Allen will play and fare when people go back to playing him the way that they had been playing him over the last couple of weeks, it doesn't answer that question for me, but it does validate and secure The fact that the first four weeks were not Josh Allen blowing up because it was a fluke. It was blowing up because that's just something you can't do against Josh Allen anymore. Right. So Mm. this is just not an option. If you are a defensive game planner, the the answer is not, you know what? I think we're going to go man against Josh Allen and single high. I think that's the answer. Because if that's the case, you might get a couple sacks and that's going to be great. But he's going to light you up like a Christmas tree. Right. 
Like that's just not an answer anymore. That's not something you can do. So I think what it does is it gives credence to the first four weeks that, that makes them, makes me think that those things weren't indicative of fluky hot starts. They were indicative of specific matchups that are no longer beneficial against Josh Allen. Now, he still has to be able to show that he can perform at a high level against what has been a problem for him the last couple of weeks. That doesn't answer that question, but instead it makes sure that what happened at the beginning of the year is real. And for me, that's what this game signifies. It's big. Yeah, no, great, great insight there and, and great point of view. Uh, so now heading into next Sunday, um, my boys get to come and hang out with me out here in the Valley, man. I'm, I'm excited. I've been talking all this stuff at work and I've been talking, I've been just, I've been talking heavy. So first of all, they got to show up. So any of you guys listening, you know, listen, if, if Isaiah's listening, if uh, I don't know who, who else have I interviewed on here, man, <laughs> whoever's listening, I need you guys to send that message like, look, we got to I know you want to win anyway, but you got to do this for me because I can't live it down out here if you guys don't show up. But heading into this weekend, my bills get to come in town and they get to face uh, Kyler Murray and the Arizona Cardinals. So, um, you know, we'll start off with you, Joe. What do you at first thought? What do you think the Cardinals have to do to beat the bills? Well, clearly they're going to have to shut. The funny thing about this football team, about the Buffalo Bills, is I think I think that they have become what I call, you know, and what everybody calls multiple. They have the ability to to beat you, and they've proven they can beat you in multiple ways. They're going to have to find some way to beat Josh Allen, and if they figure out a way to beat Josh Allen, they're going to have to shut down the run as well. Um, Feliciano being in the game is huge. That offensive line looks totally different with Feliciano in there, and obviously there's hopes that we're going to get Mitch Morris back. For me, the Cardinals are going to have to be effective. They're going to have to beat the defense, uh, and they're going to have to find a, find a way to shut down Josh Allen. I know that sounds simple. Like, that's such a such a patsy answer just because it's like, well, obviously that's what they're going to have to do. But I think it literally, literally comes down to they're going to have to find a way because the Bills, I think the Bills, and this is probably what Bruce is going to talk about if you ask him how, what the Bills have to do. You know, the Bills are going to figure out a way to, you know, they're probably going to, they're probably going to try to shut down the run and force, you know, Kyler to beat them. Um, but... They're, they're going to have to stop Josh Allen. They're going to have to confuse him. And I don't know. I don't know that they've got what it takes to confuse them, to confuse Josh Allen. I, I think Josh Allen has seen enough, if that makes any sense. I think he's, like I said earlier, we're, we're living in Josh Allen world where he is now able to make changes and adjustments mid game versus game to game. We've seen him do it season to season. We've seen him do it game to game. And now he's doing it mid game, um, which to me is super hopeful and exciting. Well, you know what, Joe, one of the things that's exciting to me is that we don't, at least for me, the last two weeks, maybe three weeks, I haven't complained about the third quarter. Right, right. So, you know, when when it comes down to that thought of, you know, well, what, what do the Cardinals have to do to beat our Bills? And then now I can reverse the question for you. What do our Bills have to do to beat the Cardinals? But at the same time, um, that third quarter to me is a big deal. So, you know, and I know you kind of just touched on it really quickly, but before I go to Bruce, I want your thoughts on that too. What do we have to do to come out of there with another big win? Because now it, I understand that in some circles it's like, okay, it's the Cardinals, and we don't think of them as a good team, but they, they're they sitting pretty close to us. They're, you know, they might not have the same exact record as they just took the loss to Miami, but they're still pretty good. They're, you know, they're sitting there, and the offense looks really good. So what, what do the Bills have to do? 
there's trouble on the home front, right? So there's rumors out there that uh, Hopkins uh, ran off the field extremely upset at the uh, the conclusion of that football game. Um, I love watching Kyler Murray play. I'm not convinced yet that he is an NFL franchise quarterback, but obviously it's still, you know, he's young and being a fan of Josh Allen, I'm not going to like, you know, sail the ship on him way too early. If that makes any sense for me, they got to shut down. They got to shut him down. So I think that they got to, they got to limit him to passing the football. They got to keep him from running. Uh, they're going to have to play the screen game tight because Cliff Kingsbury is a screen, a screen machine. Um, if they can do that and force him to be one dimensional, right. As a pastor, I think the bills have a great opportunity and they're going to have to score points. Uh, they're going to have to come out there and not, you know, did, do what Pete Carroll did, which was, you know, either overthink or underthink or get cute. You know, well, we're just going to come in and do this. Um, but they're, they're going to have to, they're going to have to offensively game plan in such a way to beat that team into the ground. I mean, I, you hope that the bills have come out of, you know, this stretch of the season, you know, at this point, nine games in, and they realize that they have abilities to beat teams however they want to beat them, as opposed to just being a one-dimensional team. So it'll be interesting to see the game plan that they put together. I think it'll be effective. Um, but yeah, I think it, it's going to come down to not getting into a shootout with Kyler Murray, in my opinion. All right. So Mr. Bruce exclusive, what do you think, man? What, what are you, or Bruce Nolan, I'm sorry. What are we, what, what do you feel are the keys for both? We'll start with the Cardinals. What, what do they have to do in order to beat the division leading Buffalo bills? I think the Cardinals have to not make the same mistake that the Seattle Seahawks made. I think the Cardinals need to say, listen, I understand that this is what we do on defense, but I will tell you this right now. Identity is overrated as a team. It's something that you hear people talk about ad nauseum. We got to find our identity, right? It's it's nonsense. It truly is. If you are a man coverage team and Josh Allen completely destroys man coverage, don't do that. Right. <laughs> just, just, just don't do that thing. It's a little bit like when you're a kid and you go up to your dad and you go, dad, it hurts when I do this. And your dad looks at you and goes, okay, don't do this. Right? It seems so obvious to us. But the fact of the matter is the Seahawks didn't get the memo. So the Cardinals need to get the memo. The Cardinals, if they want to beat Josh Allen, they're going to say, listen, I understand that we may not do this all the time, but Josh Allen has been markedly less effective against softer zone than he has against man coverage with single higher cover zero. That's just the way it is. So don't go two man. Don't go single high. Don't go cover zero and bring pressure. Go cover three, cover four, cover six, maybe some trap coverages, some things like that, that can cause Josh Allen to hold the ball and not like what he sees and to mm. say, okay, well, I really don't want to take this five yard button hook. I'll do it, but I don't really want to. And then by the time he decides to take it, the pressure has gotten there or the zone defender has collapsed on him. Because if you look at some of the interceptions that Josh Allen has thrown this year, a lot of them have been in zone where he has lost the battle between the defender who crashes down on a short route or drops back on a deeper route. So the Malcolm Butler interception was like that. That's the way it was in the Tennessee game. Josh Allen got caught and he thought he had Malcolm Butler in no man's land, but Malcolm Butler knows, dude, this is Josh Allen. He's going to take the deeper route. Let's be honest. He's going to take the deeper right. route. And he tra he dropped back and he got a pick. Pierre Desir almost did it to him again in the mm -hmm. New York Jets game. So that's the way you have to beat Josh Allen. You can't come in full of yourself with your puffed up chest and say, yeah, I know, but my man will beat them. Well, listen, if Jalen Ramsey's man coverage didn't beat you, okay, then Patrick Peterson's man coverage is probably not going to beat him. 
This is just the way it is. Offenses have such an advantage in this league that this idea that we're going to do what we do and that's just it is a level of arrogance that I simply don't have patience for when it comes to coordinators in the NFL. Do the intelligent thing. Don't just do what we do if what we do is going to get you torched. And that's just the way it is with the Arizona Cardinals. On the flip side, what the Bills need to do is the Bills need to understand that Kyler Murray is a runner, but not the same way Lamar Jackson's a runner. It's a different type of running. Kyler Murray is a runner similar to the way that Russell Wilson's a runner. So your game plan against Kyler Murray doesn't have to be a markedly different game plan than it was up front anyway against Russell Wilson. His damage is going to come through scrambles. Yes, there is some design runs, but not nearly to the amount that the Bills have run and not nearly to the amount that the Ravens run. It's a different style of running quarterback. Kyler Murray's issue is he squeaks out of places. And before you know it, you're looking around going, where'd that little bugger go? I swear I'm going to, I'm going to, and then he's got a first down. That's the way Mm. this happens. Rush lane discipline, rush lane discipline. Don't, no crazy games and stunts up front. Beat your man. Don't lose your gap. It's just like playing kick coverage. You can't, I mean, listen, you want to beat your man? Great. But you have to beat him within this realm. You can't go looping around to try and do it or you'll open up a backside hole for Kyler Murray to scoot out for 20 yards at a time. And if that happens on a third down, I'm going to pull my hair out. So that's what the Cardinals need to do. Not be arrogant. Say, listen, Josh Allen struggles against this thing. We're going to do this thing. And then what the Bills need to do is recognize that the game plan up front doesn't need to alter too much from what it was against Russell Wilson because they're the similar types of threats. Make them beat you from the pocket. Okay, I'm not saying Kyler Murray can't beat you from the pocket. I'm saying you would prefer him to do that so that you can not have to devote a spy to him unless you absolutely have to. If you do have to, then please don't make it be AJ Klein. (laughs) (laughs) and that's the way the cookie crumbles uh i feel like i have to respond because you called out like all of these guys that talk ad nauseum about identity (laughs) i'm one of those guys (laughs) oh sorry about that no you're fine (laughs) because when i talk about when i talk about identity and and specifically when i talked about it a couple weeks ago i wasn't talking about we're a zone team or we're a man team or we're a hybrid blitzing team or we're a run team when i said that the bills lack identity and I wasn't sure that they even knew who they were. I meant there's just a persona to them. Like there's a there's an aspect of like, no, we're good football players and we play good football and we can play all these things, but there's no dog in the room. There's nobody bringing that personality that the guy that you don't want to play against is more what yeah. I was talking about from an identity standpoint. So just had to clear that up for anybody that's like, oh, he's, he went there. Might I suggest <laughs> no, no, but- we use swag instead? Because I just want to use swag. Instead of identity, <laughs> let's just use swag. That works, yeah. I feel like that that word kind of got old for a while, though. Like everybody was using swag the same way now everybody uses goat. Like everybody's a goat. It was a point where everybody had swag. It was it was annoying. But last question. Last question, because I know this is I can talk to you guys all night. Like, honestly, this is this was like (laughs) the the easiest and most fun pod that I think I've done this entire time. But um, Joe and I, we kind of go back and forth about this since the last playoff game. Um, So, Bruce, Joe seems to think that that Trey White. And that do too. I think he's obviously the top two 
if why not the best cornerback. Why are you why you bringing Bruce no, into our marital conversation? These are our marital well, conversations. I mean, sometimes we need a counselor, man. We need a counselor, and I, <laughs> I think Bruce can do a really good job at this. And really, it's not even an attack at this point. Now it's it's just an honest to God question. I want to know, you know, how he sees it. And I, I was going to give you a chance to respond too. So, um, Tre'Davious White will be hopefully shadowing uh, DeAndre Hopkins. In the playoff game, Joe seems to think that Trey White kind of shut him down in the first half and then D-Hop had, you know, he woke up in the second half. I seem to think that the Houston's offense was just completely, like, asleep in the first half and it had nothing to do with if Trey was doing well or not. We just, the team in general showed up. I don't personally think that any one person in the league can cover DeAndre Hopkins. Um, what do you feel about that matchup? And then from here, like I said, we'll have Joe give an answer, and then I'll, I'll let you guys go. I'm sure we want to uh, watch the Monday night football game. Great receivers will beat great corners almost every time. That's just the nature of the game. When you have an elite athlete who knows where he's going, he's always going to have intrinsic advantages in regards to his ability to get open and make plays when you compare them to an elite athlete who doesn't know where he's going. And that's just the part about playing corner in this league. It's one of the reasons why I pound the table for elite athletic players at corner. And I get, you know, upset and make memes when Sean McDermott rolls out another four, six, 40 corner who's scrappy and plays a run. Well, well, that's great. And that's wonderful. And I'm happy for that. And, you know, good for all the Josh Norman, Levi Wallace, Daryl Worley's, of the world, Dane Jackson's of the world, right? They're all the similar type. It's like, it's a Spider-Man meme, except instead of one of them, there's four of them all pointing at each other. And <laughs> that's great, but elite wide receivers are going to beat elite corners. Now, the key is when you have an elite corner, well, you say, well, what's the purpose then? What you want to have with an elite corner is you want to limit the targets of your elite wide receiver. You're not really trying to limit the production, because you know full well that when you have an elite wide receiver like DK Metcalf, like DeAndre Hopkins, they're going to get some. That's going to happen. Unless you have a lower player going against, you know, Darrell Rivas, for example, it's just going to happen. The better thing that an elite corner does, as opposed to limiting production, is they limit opportunity for production. And this is one of the things I constantly harp on about specific people who only grade corners based on the targets. Because what they do is they leave out the plays where the receiver otherwise would have been targeted, and now they're not. This is the same argument I made when the Buffalo Bills played a specific defensive style against the Kansas City Chiefs. And I said, any play where Patrick Mahomes doesn't throw the ball is better than the alternative, which was plays when he did throw the ball. So even if the run is successful, it's still better than Patrick Mahomes throwing the ball. On a very basic level, if Patrick Mahomes averages eight and a half yards an attempt and the running game is doing really good and they average six and a half yards a rush, it's still better to run it. Six and a half versus eight and a half. It's right there. So anytime you have a, a team who is encouraged perhaps or invited to do something other than throw the ball to that elite wide receiver, that's a good thing. So for me, I think Tredavious White did fine against DeAndre Hopkins. You know, he had his moments, uh, specifically down the field, but I think Tredavious White did fine. 
against, if I was making a list of reasons why the Buffalo Bills lost that game, Tredavious White wouldn't even come to mind for me. And so for me, when you look at elite corners, what you're really trying to get them to do is not say, hey, you know what? This quarterback's going to throw the ball to this receiver and I'm totally going to make him pay for it. You might on occasion do that. But in reality, it's more like this. The quarterback looks at them and goes, eh, you know what? I'd rather take my chances on my number two receiver against their number two corner than my number one receiver against their number one corner. And he elects not to target that. And the targets that aren't, it's just like we talked about with opportunity cost earlier in this podcast, right? Opportunity cost with Josh Allen. There's no way to quantify with a statistic what the play would have been. And there's no way to quantify what the play could have been if Russell Wilson would have targeted DK Metcalf more. I think we can agree it would have been bad because more targets for DK Metcalf is bad. So anything Mm -hmm. that encourages DK Metcalf to get less targets is a good thing. And that's the way I view Tredavious White. And that's the way I view elite corners in general. Okay. You're welcome. (laughs) Well, Joe. (laughs) That's the way the cookie crumbles. I don't understand. That's the second time you said that. Why don't I get to say that, Joe? Because <laughs> I'm loving it. <laughs> <laughs> I just love that tagline. It's one of my favorite movies. What do you want me to tell you? So, no. Um, yeah. <laughs> yes, everything you said. Yes, yes the Bruce. answer is yes. That's it. <laughs> well, gentlemen, I want to thank the both of you for taking you, – you just spent an hour with me. So I want to uh, thank you both for taking the time out your days to do so. Uh, Bruce, if you want to take a moment here and let everybody know where they can find you, what, you're, what you got planned for your show this week, and just anything else you got going on. Oh, I really appreciate that, Spence. I really appreciate that very much. Joe, Spence, thanks so much for having me, guys. I really appreciate it. I know that, you know, you guys are all tight, and I'm in here like a third wheel. I'm like, oh, I just want to contribute. No. Can I contribute, guys? I'm so excited. Not at all. So I, I really appreciate you guys letting me be part of the conversation. Um, You know, uh, you can find me on Twitter, at Bruce Exclusive, and on Instagram, at Bruce Exclusive. Uh, my podcast, The Bruce Exclusive, drops every Thursday and Friday on the Buffalo Rumblings Podcast Network. And this week on the... Bruce exclusive. We are going to be talking about how to establish the fun and abandon the run. That is going to be the name of the title of the podcast. It's going to be a great, good old time. And uh, we're going to tackle some narratives on this pod, specifically about Sean McDermott, about Josh Allen, about Brian Dable, play calling tendencies, aggressiveness, things like that. And it's, it's going to be a grand old time. It's a, it's a good time to set, set the record straight on some of this stuff and use the examples from the Seattle game to do so. Joe, go ahead and take a chance uh, and and let everybody know where they can find your multiple shows. Now you have more than one. So uh, yeah, let everybody know. One of of them is only a quarterly show, but uh, while we're glad handing everybody, it's the the reality is this, you know, Bruce's show is, is, is a must listen for me. It's one of my, one of my go-tos. There's about four that are, that are must listens. Bruce's is one code of conduct is obviously another. Um, I think what's interesting about just the community of content providers inside of, you know, Buffalo Bill's mafia is that like the funness that I think listeners feel or get from us is genuine. Like we all get along, which is really kind of cool. So like for those of you that, uh, that don't know behind the scenes, the three of us are actually really tight and it's a lot of fun. And, and I go to Bruce and Spence all the time for feedback and encouragement and 
knowledge and information and whatever. So yeah, it's just, uh, it's a cool to be on the show with the two of you guys, believe it or not. So I appreciate the invite as well and the opportunity to be here. But with that, uh, yeah, so my show dropped yesterday, uh, the Overreaction Bills podcast on the Buffalo Fanatics podcast network. You can find it. It's still fresh. It's still hot. Uh, I didn't really have a whole lot of negatives in that show. So if you haven't caught it yet, uh, give yourself, I don't know, 40 minutes or so, 45 minutes and let's do it during the drive. Uh, I'm on the Humpty Hotline with everybody's guy, Jay Spence, who is obviously hosting this podcast. Uh, Wednesdays, 9 o'clock Eastern Standard Time, live on YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter. And then, yeah, just the, the John Fina show is quarterly. So we just did it last week after the first, I should say the second quarter. So John and I will, will do another show after week 12. And let me tell you, it's very strange to be standing in your kitchen with your phone on the kitchen counter and have a former Buffalo Bills Super Bowl left tackle text you. It's not normal. Like it's 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 pretty wild just to see yeah. his name come up on my phone. <laughs> like it's like no, yeah. Never, never, never thought this would happen. Like this is strange. So <laughs> it's super weird. I and well, I haven't had Super Bowl players text or anything, but trust me, I can relate. It's like wait, this is just not this is not normal, man. Right, right. So yeah. So all right, gentlemen. Again, I appreciate the two of you taking the time out and Bruce. Listen, man, a lot of people keep asking me what your identity is. I do not let them know. I promise. I don't tell them. I don't. <laughs> but listen. Oh, wait a second. Oh, go ahead. Do you even know who I am? <laughs> what, but that's the thing. It's like they, they because I joined Rumblings now, they're like, so who is he? So who is he? And I'm like, so is that your first assumption that we have like secret meetings as soon as I join that like allows me to know the top secret identity of but you know it's funny man people i literally get asked that now weekly it's 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 very funny we all walk around a fire with hoods and we do blood packs <laughs> wow to make sure that none of us uh, you know none of us betrays the identity of bruce nolan <laughs> well that escalated quickly well but, <laughs> but hey everybody have a great week go bills it's a phenomenal week to be a bills fan and you all know the drill take care of each other love each other and let's live in peace code of conduct <laughs> Code of conduct. Code of conduct. Code of conduct. Code of conduct.